0: Welcome to Luthier's Tale, I'm Ben Liggett, Luthier and owner of Liggett Guitars. For more info on my guitars, please visit liggettguitars.com. Every week I interview someone that is passionate about their craft. This week is the first part of an ongoing series on Taku Sakashta, a talented luthier who was tragically murdered in 2010. Taku leaves behind a legacy of incredible instruments and craftsmanship. Today I'm interviewing one of his friends and clients, Mr. Mike Oria. Mike is a photographer and can be found at mikeoria.com. All links and reference images can be found in the episode description. If you like the podcast, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash luthier's tale. This is Ben Liggett. I'm here today with Mr. Mike Oria from San Francisco. Um, Mike is a guitar player and was a, a client and friend of Mr. Taku Sakasha. and I just wanted to talk to him a little bit today and kind of get some more insight about uh, who Taku was as a person and what, was, what his workshop was like and what he was like um, so uh, Mike uh, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, hello, Ben. It's nice to meet you,
0: and I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you talking with me. Uh, Taku seems like a really, you know, incredible craftsman, an amazing guy, and there's just not a lot of info on him online. And so I want to talk to folks like you that knew him personally, just to kind of give all of us who just see glimpses of his in, uh, instruments on the Internet and, and hear sound clips and, and little bits, and, and we wanna know
1: more about him. It's interesting you say that because what you, what you just said there, uh, if you were to look at his work in person, if you were to come upon it in a, in a music store or at an instrument show, um, you would think this guy must be one of the absolute best builders at his craft. And yet if you were to Google him right now, you would find almost nothing about him. So his profile was very low versus his degree of artistic talent. And, um, yeah, so let's change that, shall we?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. Yeah. I mean, he needs, a uh, he needs an extensive Wikipedia page, you know, (laughs) so people can go and, and see all the stuff he's done. Um, but yet so you knew him personally so so, so tell me sure. how how did you get come across him in the beginning
1: Yes so in the early 2000s I had uh, begun taking some of my guitars, archtop guitars, to Blue Note Music in Berkeley, which was one of the guitar stores there. And they did not do repairs in-house, but they had somebody that came and would pick up the instruments, take them away for a week or two, and then bring them back for, this is for like setups and bridge saddles and lacquer repairs and whatnot. And it turns out Taku Sakashita was the guy, the guy doing that work, which is yeah. ironic and funny.
0: Yeah, um, he yeah. Was, he's more than qualified, let's say that.
1: Yeah, so you know he was probably changing strings <laughs> on guitars for people. Um, so I had brought several arch tops that I owned in from time to time, and they would come back with just impeccable work. And so I had a nut made one time. Um, and it came back just beautiful and, you know, clean and very high end. It was obvious because there, there are different ways to have work done to a guitar and you can always tell when you have somebody that goes the extra mile. So, uh, yeah, I, after a while, I, um, I believe I ran into him in the store when I was bringing in the guitar and they told me, oh, if you can wait 30 more minutes, he'll be here and uh, you can talk to him directly. His name is Taku. So uh, Taku came in and uh, just a nice fella. And um, at some point, I, he and I had um, a few transactions through this middleman of the store. And we decided, hey, wouldn't it just make sense if I contact you directly and I bring things to you as I need them done? And he thought so too. And I said, I'm happy to drive wherever you are and we can just get that done. So, where was he
0: located at this time? In Berkeley or nearby? He was,
1: no, he was actually up in Petaluma. Okay. Which is in the southern part of Sonoma County. Um, It might be Marin County, but I think it's just outside of Marin County. Okay. Petaluma. It's up in the farm, rolling green hills and cows and farmland. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so after a while, he gave me the address, and we agreed to meet on a Saturday, and I drove up to his shop in Petaluma.
0: Was this a big shop at the time?
1: It was interesting. He was renting a space on a piece of property, and it looked as though there were multiple residences, maybe some families or multiple people that rented out little uh, Cabins, maybe. And okay. behind all of that, you had to drive through a bunch of chickens and cats. <laughs> <laughs> and, but on the mailbox, there was a TS. So that's how you knew you were in the right place. You turn right at the mailbox with the, with the letters TS uh that's all it said on the on the mailbox so when you got to the mailbox with ts he turned and then you go past all these chickens and cats and then in the very back there was a workshop and it was more it was less of a residential thing and it was definitely something of a wood wood shop or what have you and um he had his favorite car he had this nissan 300z that was parked there and so you knew that that he was there. He had a some kind of a personalized license plate, and I can no longer remember what it said on that plate, but I always knew that I was there in the right place when I would see his car. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you go in the shop, and immediately you know that you are in the presence of a serious builder. And, um, you know, you had all the smells and sights and sounds. And, I mean, there was sawdust and all kinds of dust and little cups of lacquer and things all over the place. It was um, quite disarray. But at the same time, you knew that this, this guy knew what he was doing and he had a lot of things going on at the same time. (laughs)
0: <laughs> did uh, did you get to? Uh, did he have any finished instruments there when you
1: first arrived? Oh, so periodically there would be finished instruments, and he was he was very. Uh, I don't know if he was private or self conscious or maybe secretive to some degree, but whenever he had an instrument that was nearing completion, he would throw a sheet over it so that nobody could see what was underneath there. Really? So when people came to visit, he would cover up the instruments that were almost done. It was
0: just ghosts <laughs> around the, uh... <laughs> a little cloth yes. ghost sitting around the shop. That's,
1: That's right. So there were some sheets, and uh, of course, uh, you know, as we got to know each other, I started visiting him on subsequent visits, and uh, he left the sheets off after that. But I do remember that very first time, and whenever strangers were in the place, he would cover up things that he wow. didn't want. To, so,
0: so normally you'd think like someone would do the opposite. They'd say, "Oh, you came in for a repair. Look at look at this awesome." stuff I can build. Don't you need a custom guitar? You know, something like that. But no, he,
1: he wanted to hide it. Uh, You know what? He had a very high concept approach to what he did. And some of his designs were just completely original and they were highly visual. And if, if I had to conclude what was going on, I probably would think that he did not protect his intellectual property at all. He, nothing was patented, as far as I know. I don't think he he went through that process ever for patented patenting designs or yeah. uh, doing anything to protect his work. So he might have just been trying to keep new, uh, you know, things that he was still working on before they were ready to to go public. He was just trying to keep those um, from being seen and shared and, and what have you I'm not sure but
0: yeah and I wonder too maybe they were um, partially done and he didn't want someone to get yeah. the wrong idea if something looked rough maybe he wanted the you to see the final product only.
1: He very much cared about that, Ben. And I do remember that sometimes if a piece of binding or a bevel or a little bit of joinery wasn't exactly perfect, that he didn't want anybody to inspect it or look at it. Or, you know, even if if the sound wasn't right, maybe if he was still working on tuning a top or something, um, you know, that that was definitely the case with him.
0: Yeah. So you say his, his, uh, mindset was kind of high concept. You know, I, have always looked at instruments, uh, custom made instruments like, uh, like kinetic sculpture, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a visual thing, but it's also a tool yeah. and it's also, um, something that's reacting to your input. Um, mm-hmm. do you think he saw it in the same way? Did he see himself as an artist you think, or, or more of a, a craftsperson or?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's very clear to me and to the the viewer that he was intently interested in the visual aspects of his instruments. He apparently had a um, very good understanding of design and of lines and um, what was beautiful and what was appealing to the eye. Mm -hmm. However, um, as I got to know him, I found out that his absolute top priority was the sonics of the instrument. And he cared completely about how those pieces of wood translated into sound and how the, um, you know, how the neck material or how the fingerboard would, or how the fittings or the carve or the bracing would ultimately add to his final instrument, how it sounded. And so, I think if you just looked at his images of his instruments, you could really conclude that this this guy is all show, because he had uh, you know such beautiful looking instruments. But then, if you were to hold the guitar in your hands, you could instantly tell that it was uh, very highly crafted. And then once you played it, you knew for sure what you were holding was a high end instrument, musical instrument. So Taku had some of his heroes um, that he that re- he really liked. One of them was Bob Benedetto, and he really appreciated the work of Bob Benedetto. And he studied Bob Benedetto's book, "How to Make an Archtop Guitar." I might not be. Um, I might not be getting the title right. Sure. And uh, I actually contributed some of my photography to the uh, second edition of that book. So it's a uh, shame oh. on me for not knowing the name of the book. That's awesome, but uh, I think it's How to Build an Archtop Guitar. And in that book, Bob just shares so much of his craft with uh, cross sections and um, arching diagrams and just tips and it's wonderful. And so Taku just ate that up. And, um, he also, he studied beautiful instruments and he, he loved the look of the uh, art deco builders like the Angelico and Jimmy Aquisto, uh-huh. And, um, you know, he very much appreciated the, what was going on there. And that was a somewhat of a different style, of course, because that was hearkening to the nineteen early 1900s um, or 1930s uh, Art Deco look. And Bob Benedetto, on the other hand, was um, paying homage to the old, um, the Cremona-style builders of the violins with their, uh, you know, lack of... Um, Uh, frivolous parts and lightweight builds and, um, you know, very simple styling that were present on the violins of those, uh, you know, the 1500s and so forth. So um, Taku appreciated all of that and he studied it all. And if you looked on his bookshelf, you could see that he had books like coffee table books that showed beautiful instruments and magazines that he kept that had beautiful instruments in it. And he was always inspired not always by guitars, sometimes by other instruments, too. But um, I used to bring guitar. I brought in a Benedetto guitar that I used to own. It was a um, 1989 Benedetto Manhattan that Bob had made, handmade in Clearwater, Florida. And it was a wonderful instrument. It played so beautifully. It sounded so good. And I brought it in to Taku. And he, he loved for me to bring it in. And he actually, uh, uh, at least one time, said, hey, can you leave it with me? for a bit and let me study it and learn what I can from it. And I said, sure. And, um, but for, for, um, that guitar, I believe at some point I had to sell it and I had stopped playing six string and I had switched to seven string. And that was the last six string that I owned. And I just wasn't playing it anymore cause I, I didn't play six string anymore. So I, I had to part with that Benedetto and, um, At some point, Taku had replaced the standard bone nut with a highly polished scalloped nut. And it was made out of uh, mammoth tusk, as I recall.
0: Very exotic.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, mammoth, uh, uh, like mammoth, yeah, mammoth ivory. And um, he scalloped it. And so, you know, there's no, I guess there's no um, form uh, or, or there's no functional benefit to a scalloped nut. It's just really decorative. And, um, you know, occasionally you see these on on mandolins and on other instruments, and they're very beautiful. And he did that, and he made a few scallop nuts for other instruments over the years. But um, it was really beautiful. And it was time for me to sell the Benedetto, and the buyer sent me an email and said, I'll buy the Benedetto, but I don't want that scallop nut. Can you have a regular nut put on it? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I showed up on Saturday at Taku's shop and I said, hey, um, they they want just a regular nut. The buyer is ready to go. He's going to send the money and um, I just need to get this replaced. And he says, what do you mean? He doesn't like my nut. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, he just wants the traditional look. And... I'll, I'll never forget this. So Taku loosened the strings and he just tore this beautiful nut off of the the, the neck uh, at the end of the, the fretboard. And he threw it into the Rubbermaid trash bin. And I could hear it banging around at the bottom of the bin like bing, bing, bing. And uh, he says, this hurts my pride. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the at the time, I didn't know what to make of it because I had never seen him just sort of, um, you know, turn like that. But really what was happening was he had probably spent more than a reasonable amount of time to make that and to get it looking as perfect as it was. He even had little um, dental tools that he used to polish it at the end. So it was highly oh. polished. And, uh, yeah, and I, you know when he had made that originally for me, I remember he sent me away for about two hours. He said, go away for two hours and come back and it'll be ready. <laughs> and that's how he liked to work. Like you would, he didn't want you seeing what he did. He just, yeah, <laughs> he just to show you the, the finished final product, which was always just breathtaking. So, and that probably made it even more beautiful when you see the final result and you don't see all the trouble that he went to, to get to that result. But, Anyway, I, you know, I know that he had spent a great deal of time making that nut look as beautiful as it did. And then it was completely worthless. No, nobody, Uh the guy didn't want it and he could do nothing with it after that. And so he just hurts my pride. uh, I love that. Yeah, Hurts my pride. Oh, were you worried that you, uh, you upset him? (laughs) Well, so then he said, well, come back in 30 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, 30 minutes is a lot less time than two hours. So I knew what was going on, the guitar, <laughs> a regular standard nut. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was just a regular old bone, tempered bone nut. It was not polished. It was very much in the style of what you would get on a good instrument, but not what you would get on a super high end instrument. So yeah, he, he did, he he gave the customer, the buyer, what he wanted. And um, I came back in and I said, oh, that's great. Thank you so much. And we went on about our way.
0: Well, (laughs) uh, let me ask you this. Did you, uh, did you ever end up getting a guitar? Did you ever commission a guitar from him?
1: So after a while I was bringing things to him, And the work he was doing was so good. He was making improvements to these guitars. And I wasn't just bringing him schlocky guitars. He was getting, uh, I was bringing in the the instruments that I loved. And um, I had some great things at the time. I had Benedettos, and I had a Dale Unger seven-string guitar, and I had a Nelson Palin from Kansas seven-string custom guitar, and um, maybe one other one... Um, And so I was bringing him these and he was consistently sending them back home with me better instruments than they were when they came in. So um, things were, he was making improvements to these. So one day he did say, Mike, how come you always bring me other people's instruments? How come you don't have me make one for you? And my quick answer was, well, because I can't afford you, Taku because I had seen his guitars hanging at a few of the stores and at the, um, at the guitar shows. And it was, they were very expensive. And so he said, Oh, fair enough. So (laughs) we forgot about it and, and, uh, didn't talk about it again. And then, but that planted the seed with me. And I knew that ultimately I really, really wanted to have one of his instruments. And, um, so I think it was end of 2006, I, I said, you know what? I think I'm ready. Let's talk about it. And I had made a list of specs that I wanted and woods and just what I wanted the guitar to look like. And I showed up there and he, he wouldn't look at it. He said, no, 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 no. I already know what you want. He said, after all these uh, guitars that you've brought me. And as I would bring a guitar to his shop, he would always ask me, what do you like about it? And he would listen to me play and he would say, well, what do you like about the high register? Well, what do you like about the mid range here? Well, you know, what's that? What do these bass notes sound like to you? And he just made all these mental notes and he, he, he knew everything. And, um, so, here I am ready to tell him what I want, and <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. He said, I already know what you want. I know the sound that you have in your head of the guitar. I will build you the guitar that you want. Oh, wow. And I trusted him. Absolutely. I was like, yes. <laughs> How can you say no to that? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so I guess, uh, to, to make the story longer, um, he sends me away. I brought a deposit and, um, he, one of the things with him when he had built guitars and I, I had friends who had had him, who had had the experience of having a Taku Sakashta guitar built for them. And one thing that they also said was don't bother him. Don't bug him. <laughs> don't ask him. <laughs> he doesn't like
0: temperamental that. genius. You know, <laughs> watch out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that was really that was part of the thing. Was uh, he told me up front? And he said, "Do not ask me for updates. Don't ask me for pictures. Just please don't." It's I, I work best if you just go away and let me do my work. So uh, that's what we did, and I respected that, and it paid off. It really how, paid how off. How long was so,
0: this? How long did it take him
1: to get all the way to? Let's fast forward to the end of the story. It took two and a half years. Wow. (laughs) Yes. It wasn't supposed to. Uh, He told me it would take about a year, maybe a little over a year. But some things interfered, and that's fine. And, you know, the whole time it was a wonderful experience because he did not make me stay away. He, in fact, he had me up there. Any Saturday that I wanted to go, I showed up. And I would watch. And, uh, you know, we did wood selection. And we spent the first... We spent almost a year on selecting all the materials. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. So, Taku was a small builder. He had a great collection of aged woods in his shop already. But he, whenever he wanted new pieces, he it was not easy for him to get. And particularly right there around Sonoma County, there are scads of wonderful guitar builders. Um Rebecca and grimes and uh well grimes not wasn't there i'm sorry Uh, michael lewis and um i mean just you can throw a rock around sonoma county and you could hit a luthier there were so many and they were all real close by also the uh, luthier's mercantile Mm -hmm. store where a lot of these people would get their supplies was there as well. So what Taku said was that um, in order for him to have first pick of some of the best woods, he would have to bribe the wood uh, suppliers. And so um, he would make, uh, on, sp- on certain occasions he would um, call me and he texted me. His favorite thing was a text and I'd get a text and it would just say, come C-O-M-E <laughs> come. <laughs> he was, he was man a few words. Uh, but he would just say, come. And so I would go like, I'd get that text on, let's say a Friday afternoon. And so that told me be here on Saturday morning. And so at 10 AM on Saturday, I'd be in the shop. And, uh, that was when the wood truck showed up and he pulled a few things off and he brought them off the wood truck and he brought them over to me. And I was like, Ooh, I like this. I like this. That looks good. And, um, we did that once, maybe twice. I think we did it first for the, uh, Uh, the back and sides wood. And then like a year later, we did it again for the uh, fingerboard and, and fittings and um, head plate laminates uh, veneer. I think that's what it's called. The head plate veneer.
0: So tell me about the woods that
1: you guys ended up actually choosing for the build. Oh, sure. So originally, let's see if I can uh, remember the spruce. He knew automatically what we were doing. So the guitar that was going to, it was going to be specked out as a 16 inch lower bout. And Taku really had a good feeling for three and an eighth inch thickness. So not three and a half and definitely not anything less than three and an eighth.
0: Are you talking about body Um, depth here?
1: Body depth. Yep. Body depth. So 16 inch, um, uh, lower bout size and then body depth three and an eighth inch. And, um, so then, at that point, he knew that he wanted to do Sitka spruce, and he had in his shop already a beautiful piece that we thought would be great for it. And I, he showed me how to um, tap or tap on the, the blanks, yeah. and uh, you know, knock on plates and so forth as they were as he was carving away wood and so I uh, began doing that and um, so we would just he would pull out a bunch of things and we would just go through and I would knock on them and look at them and bend them and you know do what I could to see what I liked and what I thought might be good but he really wanted it to be Sitka spruce on the top and um, a quilted uh, maple on the back Uh, and I believe it was big leaf maple I see. And then the neck, we were going with a figured like a curly maple as well. And uh, fast forward a couple years in, he made the maple neck, and he wasn't happy with it. And he said, I really think we would do better with something of a mahogany on this neck instead of the maple, if you're okay with that. And I absolutely was. And he had a piece of um, aged Spanish cedar a big nut blank that was in the shop. And I remember kind of playing with it as a baseball bat a couple of <laughs> times I was in there. And, um, I knew that that was the piece. He said, this is the piece I want to use on this. And I was like, yes, let's do
0: it. Oh man. I I'm uh, rarely so, disappointed, uh, by softwood necks, you know, um, yeah, cedar, yeah. um, um, butternut. Um, there's a, an amazing, <laughs> uh, it, it kind of, um, I don't, know, I don't know if it's the, the, the lightweight nature of it or what, but sometimes they just really ring and really feel um, extra resonant and alive when you play
1: those. Uh, ben, I think you hit the nail on the head there, and that's what he was going for as well. And, you know, these maple necks are always heavy on arch tops, and you get, especially when you have a large headstock, mm-hmm. you get that, um, if you're sitting and playing, it's just miserable when you have a really heavy neck. So um, this... I believe there was something to do with that. Now, what I found out is that Spanish cedar is not a cedar at all, but it's a something of a mahogany that just smells like cedar. So um, that may or may not be right, but what I know, maybe a
0: hardwood rather than a um, um, uh, a soft wood.
1: Yes. So uh, what I know about it is it's very lightweight, but it's very stiff, and so it has very high stiffness. Per its weight, right. and um, this was a wonderful choice. And of course, the the neck blank. When I was holding this gigantic baseball bat, that thing was heavy. It was a heavy sucker, and uh, but after he carved it, and you know, much later in the game here, when he handed it to me, it was light and it was wonderful. So um, it was a wonderful choice, beautiful. And um, did you
0: end up going with uh, ebony for the fretboard?
1: So the original plan was indeed to use ebony for the uh, fretboard and tailpiece and fittings, uh, finger rest, and so forth. And um, one day I was in the shop and he had some blanks of African blackwood. And uh, he said, have you ever seen African blackwood? And I said, No, (laughs) do tell. (laughs) And so um, I was knocking these pieces, tapping them and flicking them and dropping them on the table to hear the ring. And the pieces of ebony would go bonk, bonk, bonk. And then when I got to the piece of blackwood, it sounded like a marimba. It went bing and it just like run like a bell. And this is an uncarved blank. And I could not believe it. It was hard and um, very resonant very different than the ebony. And he said, well, the only thing about this is it destroys your tools. So he said, if I'm going to use this for your guitar, I'm going to kill my tools uh, because it's very hard to work with. And I assume that's right. I haven't really seen a lot of African blackwood out there, but that's what he used for the headstock veneers, for the fingerboard, for the um, finger rest, for the tailpiece, the tuning buttons, pretty much everything that had a black area on it, he used African blackwood.
0: Yeah, yeah, that you know, it, like maple for, for say a maple neck on an archtop. You know, maple makes sense uh, on a traditional archtop because yes. they, they've got a quick decay. They got a maple usually like kind of has a dry sound, you know. And if you <laughs> if you want that uh, that really quick decay, dry, um, bassier sound, you know, ebony makes sense. Maple makes sense on that. Would you say this is a brighter archtop than
1: your average archtop you pick up or or what's the tone like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I play finger style with fingernails. And so I do, um, jazz chord melody type work and um, I don't. I use a pick for picking, but really what we wanted was something that could be so sensitive that I could energize the top very easily using just finger plucking. And because I use just a little bit of fingernail combined with flesh, it, there was indeed a need to let some of that higher frequency come out. Yeah. And I think you might be right. He knew that he was trying to tune for that. The guitar, I think if played by somebody who did pick style, like a Kenny Burrell or Herb Ellis style of sound, that just would not, probably would not be the same guitar. Yeah. It would be a totally different experience. But what I wanted is very sensitive to my touch uh, and um, have the brightness of the fingernails kind of uh, pop through at the attack of the yeah,
0: note. Yeah, yeah, more attack. And, you know, it, and it seems like, um, you know... Th- Taku is a guy who was a, a craftsman who, who watched you play, um, you know, it kind of took that in. He was constantly asking you about, um, uh, what you liked about each instrument you brought him and he, and he tailor made your instrument just for you. And that's a, that's pretty special.
1: This is true. It is a work of art. And, um, whenever I hold this guitar, it's, it's just magical. I mean, I am holding something that I believe was at the very pinnacle of his art. And I think, um, you know, unfortunately he, his, uh, time with us was cut much too short, but I feel like if he, he had gone from that point and then continued to go in that direction, he would have been making many people very happy with some amazing instruments uh, myself included, of course. Do you,
0: do you have any idea of his output or how many instruments he made per year, roughly?
1: He always struck me as a very low output builder just because it took so long to get guitars. But over the years, I've seen dozens, if not a couple hundred of his instruments, and he was punching out instruments at some point. So I want to say it was maybe in the um, mid-90s, until the early two thousands, he was highly productive. And so, no, I don't know. But I do know that from time to time, one of his old instruments would show up on eBay or would show up in a store or at a show. And he hated seeing an old guitar. He just, (laughs) it was like, (laughs) it was, you know, probably like uh, Michelangelo seeing one of his early sculptures or, you know, something like that where you know he just dreaded it because all he all he could do, and this is the sign of a perfectionist, was all he could do was focus on the mistakes. And so when someone brought him one of his older guitars that they bought on eBay, let's say from the '90s, he just would shudder. And then... <laughs> well, well, yeah, you know he's
0: he's constantly improving. You know, uh, if you're doing everything right, uh, a luthier's last guitar is one of their best guitars, you know, cause you're, you're constantly honing great. your craft. So yeah, he's, all he's seeing is uh, all the stuff he's improved upon since. And
1: he's, he's so I can commiserate <laughs> with that. Now that said, I've seen some of his guitars from the late nineties and they're just exceptional. Oh, I'm sure they're I mean, great. <laughs> I'm sure he's his
0: own worst critic, you know? Oh, tell me about, uh, what do you think would be important for people to know um, about Taku that uh, aren't aware of him?
1: Sure. So his quest was to make great sounding instruments. He was also constantly researching the art and the the, the whole, um, the craft, what everybody was doing. He was interested in that. And I know when he attended the Healdsburg Guitar Festival every two years and other shows, I think he only went to Healdsburg though. He might not have gone did too much traveling, but he would tap into some of those other luthiers and he would ask them questions and he would share. And he was already building at such a high uh, level that he probably didn't need to know what those answers were, but it was probably at least valuable for him to see how other people were doing things. Uh, but he already had his own style and, and it was very uh, well worked out at that point. But yeah, In addition to guitars and the sounds, um, making the best possible guitar that he could, he also was very fascinated with amps and pedals and pickups. And right in his last couple of years, he started building custom pedals and pickups. Oh, wow. And uh, a lot of people don't know this, but then there are also... a a group of people that might not know him for his guitars that only know him for those pedals. And, um, because they've become somewhat of a, um, cult, uh, piece and, um, well, let me just back up a little bit. So Taku was always fascinated with the Dumble amplifiers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How Alexander or Howard Dumble, I can't remember his first name, but, um, these are very hard to come by, extremely expensive boutique amplifiers. And um, just to give the audience number- an
0: idea, I just saw a picture of one for sale at a store for $45,000. Yeah, it, it, and it looked like a tweed Fender a reasonable. amp,
1: you know? Right, and that's a reasonable price. And during the days when Mr. Dumble was building amps, you weren't allowed to. Um, to look inside or have anyone service the amp and uh, you weren't allowed to ask him questions or anything yeah, like this that. Man it was, was very
0: famous secret. for um, taking his, his point to point wired circuit boards and covering them in epoxy. So no one could <laughs> copy his, <laughs> uh, his uh, s- schematic.
1: True. So um, in addition to the clean tones and Taku's love of beautiful, pure, uh, tr- uh uh, I guess, sine wave type music. He also had an affinity for cranking it up and hearing some good old rock and roll when the, the time came. So um, he had an amp in the the shop and he used to like kiss. Oh, wow, <laughs> This is funny because nobody knows this. Uh, he used to love kiss. And so he would, whenever he would crank up the guitar, he would, uh, Kick the distortion pedal and he would play some kiss and he would do like uh, Detroit Rock City and <laughs> Love Gun. And I would have never <laughs> guess that. <laughs> and the whole shop was rumbling and the sawdust was blowing off the tables and everything. But um, he had borrowed a Dumble Clone amp. I want to say maybe it was a two-rock or maybe it was someone else's amp. And um, he was really fascinated with it. And he wanted to make a pedal that could sort of get in that ballpark and get dumble sounds, but going through a clean power stage, such as a plugging in front of a Roland Jazz chorus 120 or some sort of very clean amp that would still get a reasonable sounding blues overdrive sound. Yeah. And so fast forward he um came up with a prototype of a pedal and he called me one time and or he he texted me and said, Come. And I showed up and he said, Hey, I'm working on this pedal. Do you want to hear it? And I said, Of course. And he had the Dumbo clone amp going through a cabinet, like a 212 cabinet. And right next to it was his pedal going into a Roland Jazz chorus 120 power stage and then going out into that same cabinet, 212. And he was A Bing them with a switch and just saying, Hey, look, you know, this, this amp sounds has the beautiful dumbbell tone. And what do you think of my pedal? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't tell the difference. It sounded so beautiful. And uh, he had nailed it. And that was part of the thing was once he knew how to put the electronics to work for him to achieve the sound that he wanted, he could dial that in. And he just understood the effect of, sound um, how the components and how the parts of anything equated to a total end result. So uh, the pedal sounded great. And I said, you definitely have it. Uh, Go for it, man. You you can make a lot of money selling these pedals. Uh, So I think the next day I called him, I, I drove home and I called him back and I said, Hey, you know what? When you're ready to build one of those, I'll take one. How much do you want for it? And he was like, Oh, I haven't figured out the price. How about a hundred dollars, or maybe he said one twenty five, something like that. I said, okay, fine, just save one for me. And um, so he shipped me a pedal. It's called the Smoky Signal S M O K Y Signal. Okay. Tubeless pedal, and um, I had number two, so serial number zero zero two. He had number one, mm. <laughs> and he ended up making probably a couple hundred of these. I'm not sure exactly how many, but maybe more, maybe maybe three or four hundred of these things. But this was one of the side projects that got in the way a little bit of my guitar being completed because he had so much great publicity and popularity building the pedals. Um, and it was a great pedal. And so um, these pedals are now selling for over $2,000. Oh, geez.
0: Well, I tell you and, what, that's still a lot cheaper than, uh, a Dumble amp. So if you, if you can true. get the pretty accurate tone, uh, at that price point, then, uh, you know, nothing wrong with that.
1: Yeah, it's a great, definitely a great pedal. And there are some people that really appreciate it. Of course, it only has three knobs on it. So, uh, two knobs on the front or three knobs on the front and one little, um, a resonance knob on the side that does something cool but it's not doesn't have the tweak ability of an amp obviously so it's not a replacement by any sure. means for a forty five thousand dollar amp <laughs> but it definitely is a snapshot or a couple of snapshots of what that amp can do and uh it's very it was very well created uh, let me ask you this
0: as well um what was the pickup that he went with on your instrument
1: so I always loved Kent Armstrong, what Kent called the PAF. It has nothing to do with a PAF that you'd find in a Gibson Les Paul, for instance. But um, Kent Armstrong, who hand, hand wraps uh, or hand designs pickups up in Vermont. Uh, every guitar I've ever bought, I pull out the pickup that it comes with, and I always order a Kent Armstrong, the same pickup. I always get that. 14-pole piece adjustable uh, it has like um, oh hex lug adjustable mm-hmm. uh, lugs on it, and um, it just has a beautiful warm sound. And it comes in four conductor. And Kent, tell you call Kent, and he you tell him what he wants. You give him the measurements and the pulpy spacing, and he'll make something custom for you, even you don't have to be a luthier or a store. You could just be a civilian like me and he'll build you one pickup and he'll make it real, very, very custom. And he's amazingly good. So uh, Kent Armstrong is such a wonderful person making these pickups. So that was decided that it would have a Kent Armstrong pickup. I had brought him one that I had an extra, but he um, wanted to make sure that the spacing of the pole pieces exactly matched the string spacing on the guitar. So we waited until he had put the bracing in and everything. And then he custom ordered one from Kent ah. and um, yeah. So it was a Kent Armstrong seven string pickup. It's called the PAF model. And but custom uh, made for that
0: instrument ball. to its uh, exact string spacing
1: made just to that spacing. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. And if you had an eight string guitar or a nine string guitar and you called up Kent and you gave him those measurements, he would give you that exact pickup that you want in less than 30 days, probably. (laughs) So with, and very affordable, amazingly affordable. What Kent Armstrong. Yeah. You you.
0: really can't go wrong with Kent Armstrong. Yeah. There's a few brands like that, that uh, tried and true. So Mike, tell me about uh,
1: how Taku was involved with Robin Ford. Sure. So I'm not sure how Taku got to know Robin, but he knew him over the years. And Taku greatly respected Robin's tone. Robin Ford, for people who love blues and for jazz and fusion players who knew Robin Ford as being a guitarist in Miles Davis, one of the Miles Davis bands, um, for instance. But uh, Robin Ford has a, a long pedigree playing blues. And he's very well known for his great guitar tone. And, um, so at some point, um, I want to say Taku had reached out to Robin or they had met each other and they talked about Taku building a guitar for him. This happened. And, um, Taku had a model called the New Paul, N-O-U-P-A-U-L, kind of like, uh, like a new Les Paul. Right. right? Uh, but the new Paul model, and it was a single cut solid guitar. I won't get into, I won't try to quote the features and I'll be wrong. I'm sure I will. I watched many of these being built. And so I remember seeing them go from wood blank to finished product and, um, It was a beautiful guitar. And all I can say is I I do own a couple of Gibson Les Pauls myself. And um, this was nothing like what if you bought a Gibson custom shop guitar and uh, played it and you played a new Paul. Not that they were trying to be the same thing, but Taku's instrument was nothing like that. It was just head and shoulders above in sound and just in Uh, response and just as a solid body guitar goes it was just exceptional so there are a few dozen people maybe a couple hundred people that have these guitars that uh, taku made and And, this um, was kind
0: of like his his signature electric right
1: yes it was he had about two or three different solid guitar models but his flagship signature model was the new paul and he made about Two different versions of it. And um, just, I mean, to give you a feel of what his strategy was with that, uh, I know that, uh, and I'm not a, a wood craftsman and I don't understand uh, a lot of those details. Maybe you can help um, sure. clarify this a little. But one of the things that Taku really loved to do was to join two pieces of unlike woods together together in such a way that when he then carved away the wood into the resulting shape, it would reveal the different wood aspects looking like they were inlaid, right? Okay. Um, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, and, if
0: you, and if, you, uh, if you look up a, a picture of Taku's new Paul, you can kind of get an idea.
1: Yes. So what he did was he strategically placed... Um, a pe- and I'm not looking at it right now but I want to say he used a very fancy piece of uh, maple figured maple that would go in a couple of different places sandwiched into the mahogany such that when you carved away the armrest curve the contour up at the top mm-hmm. um, and when you carved away for the what would be the finger rest the area underneath the um, where the strings are, you would end up with something that looked like a pick guard, right? And um, it was really just the wood was already joined in such a way that um, these unique woods were now being revealed as he carved them away. I'm probably saying that completely wrong. No, I think but,
0: you're describing it quite accurately. Um,
1: yeah, and he loved to do that. And so um, that was something that he did in spades with his New Paul model.
0: Um, and, and, something else about the, um, the new Paul is they, the, the carves on the back, uh, appear much more elegant and flowing with the, the lines of the body than, than say a, you know, a standard less Paul it doesn't even really have a, a much of a belly carve, uh, to speak of, but you know, every detail on everything he touches seems to be, um, well thought out and, um. Close attention paid to design. Um, do you know anything about the tailpiece that was on the um, the new Paul? Okay, so
1: I just pulled up a picture of the cover of Robin Ford's Truth album. Okay. so um, And this is a great record, by the way, not just because it has Taku's guitar on the cover, but um, if you love Robin Ford, I certainly do. I think this was one of his... Um, as far as guitar tone and as far as great songs go, this is one of his best records truth. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm looking at this now and indeed um, that tailpiece was absolutely handmade um, by Taku. Any pieces such as the pick guard ring or the pickup rings, you see the black pickup rings yes. there. Um, he always, those were always carved wood Um, everything was custom made. The knobs were always his own. He never bought, at least in his later years, never bought store-bought things. Um, where he could help it, like if it was a uh, strap, uh, button or something like that, if he could make it himself, he made it. And so, um, yes, always pickup rings. He always threw away the pickup rings that came with pickups or that, uh, you could buy stock and he always made his own. And then this tailpiece, he definitely custom made that.
0: All those little details uh, make it that much more special,
1: for sure. And I see now, yes, the arm carve or whatever that's called up at the top of the guitar, yeah. the be- arm bevel, that- or yes, and it's also yeah. a good example
0: and- of the um, the relief uh, in the pickguard area or, or where the pickguard would normally be. Um,
1: what looks like a pick guard is not actually a pick guard. It's just carved away and it's inlaid wood there. So that burled maple or whatever, uh, he used different woods for that sometimes. Um, that is very much part of that inlay process that he did. Yeah,
0: and you don't, yeah, I haven't seen a lot of that, uh, being done. So that, that's very much his, uh, his signature thing. And it's, it's very striking and,
1: uh, very impressive, that's good to hear. The original back for my guitar, um, and one of the reasons why it took so much longer for my archtop to be built, was that the back material, once we, we found a beautiful piece, and it was called um, Chicken Feather. Um, it was a quilted maple, mm-hmm. and it specifically was a chicken feather design. That's what Taku called it. I don't know if that's... Called that, but it looked exactly like feathers, overlaid little feathers. Um, If you could imagine the feathers of a chicken, they looked exactly like that. Um, It was called chicken feather. And once he started getting into bending the sides and deep cutting the back, there were some micro cracks in that wood, and we had to abandon it. So he actually did not use the chicken feather for the back. He used it for the sides because those were fine. But um, so the sides of my guitar has the chicken feather. And then the back, we had to go back to the drawing board and look for a good piece of quilted maple that was now going to roughly match the sides that had already been made. And so uh, it added, definitely added time, probably three or four more months into it. My goodness.
0: Yeah, I'm going to add photos of this instrument um, uh, to the to my website. Um, I'm, I'll basically, I'll put in the intro, um, all the images that we've spoken about. So people can look at that for reference and stuff. Um, man, Mike, thank you so much for, uh, speaking with me today and telling me about this awesome craftsman who, you know, the world doesn't know enough
1: about and, you know, keeping the, the memory alive. He was really a special person, and the more people that just might take interest, hopefully from hearing from me and from other people who knew him or reading about him, if that's even possible, because there's almost no literature where he's discussed anywhere. Um, I think we'll we'll benefit from this, and I hopefully we'll get some value in it because it only it just it boggles the mind what he would be building today. Yeah, and I just think about you that. Can only you know, imagine. it's been over ten years. Yeah, it's been over 10 years since his passing. And um, I can only imagine what his instruments would look like today. Yeah.
0: Yeah, with all the uh, the influence of uh, Instagram on the uh, and the internet in general on, on the visual side of things, I'm sure he'd be well ahead of everyone else. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, sir. I sure appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. My website is liggetguitars.com. Mike's website is mikeoria.com. Links to the Patreon page and reference images can be found at Luthierstale.com